All right, so we're going to jump in and finish Revelation. And I can't help but remember when Kristen brought up that this is the end, some of you seemed a little too happy about that, okay? Like that that was like an overly excited um, excitement to be done with the book of Revelation. Well, just imagine my kind of nervousness too as being the one who has to clean it all up right has to like take us across the finish line you know like um do revelation 21 and 22 it's just you know it's just a couple chapters uh no it's not actually um but these are some of the most beautiful and powerful passages of scripture and, you know, I, I can't help but just be captured by them myself and even in some ways a little bit moved by them right now. And this isn't at all in my, my sermon notes, so, so you'll just have to go with me here. But, like, I just, like, last week lost my grandmother. And so I spent the last couple days um, up in northern Indiana helping do her memorial service. And so it's been a it's been a crazy weekend, but I can't ever say that I was truly just heartbroken sad. And it's not because I didn't have a good relationship with my grandmother. That's the opposite. It's that I knew she was a believer. And so like I, I'm preparing this message and then I'm I'm watching what's happened to her and then I I have this sense of hope. I have this this picture of, like, she's okay, right? Like, in fact, like, the picture of what it says that she's experiencing right now is so moving that, you know, I kind of wish I was there with her. But here we are. We're together this morning. And we're coming to an end, and... The one thing I would just say about Revelation 21 and 22 is that it thematically, like, or it literally ends the book of Revelation, but it also thematically ends the entire biblical narrative. And, like, if you think about it, it's easy when we do book studies to just take it as a part, but not see the part as part of the whole. And so what I want to try to do with our time today is explain how this part of Scripture completes not only the book of Revelation, but also take that step back and look at the larger story of God that we have seen since the beginning and see how this chapter or these two chapters brings that all to this wondrous and beautiful close. So as we jump in, let's pray again. Father in heaven, we come before you. We know that there are beautiful things in store for us because as we read this passage, we can't help but just to be captured and captivated by the beauty, the hope that we have in what is to come. Lord, I ask that as we read the word, as we just talk about it as we connect it to your story. Lord, I pray more than anything else that you be present, that you move through us, that you open our eyes, that you move us to the point where we can truly be also, all of us in this room, captured by this wondrous and beautiful story that has Jesus on the throne, face to face, wiping every tear from every eye. Amen. 
So I, I would be lying if I didn't mention that this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. You know, like people say, oh, what's your favorite passage, you know? Boom, right here, Revelation 21, especially verses 1 through 4. And part of the reason why is because, like I said before, you know, it's just beautiful. It's captivating. And if I'm honest, as I started going through seminary and started learning more and more about Scripture, I was completely rocked. My world was rocked when I started reading about this idea and picture of heaven and salvation. Because I grew up with an idea of heaven and salvation that was entirely too plain and it was entirely too small. I saw the beauty in heaven only in as far as it wasn't the terrible and incredibly specific picture of hell. My only view of wanting to go to heaven wasn't because of heaven itself, it's because I didn't want to go to hell. I bet some of you probably have been in that place too. It wasn't inspiring to me. Like the picture of heaven was just like, all right, floating on clouds, like, I don't know, like, that, I don't know if that truly resonates with me. But part of that is because of how I was taught or how we talk sometimes in the church about heaven and salvation. And we leave out passages and stories like this that just give us this picture that we can't escape, that just draws us in. Besides, if I'm honest again, I think my view was too small because I was thinking only in terms of me. Myself. My view of salvation was just a me and Jesus situation. Not at all a people from all nations, all creatures, and all creation type of salvation. Salvation was an individualistic proposition. And when I came to see what the scriptures portrayed, especially in Revelation here, I saw that they didn't match what scripture was telling me. So as we jump into this passage, I want to ask you to join me in broadening your vision, even if that means holding very loosely the ideas and pictures you are bringing in with you. So let's go back to Revelation 21. And we're going to just read a few verses, um, starting in the Verses 1 through 4, we're going to do those again. And as you're finished turning, you know, one of the things I, I just want to say up front is I am not going to be able to do these chapters justice. I'm just not. Because they are so rich in the pictures they paint, in their messages, and the way they come connect back and fulfill the Old Testament, I could literally spend hours and a week telling you and connecting you to all that this portrays. And believe me, I tried, but it was like a 70-hour... No, I'm just kidding. Um, So just want to say that up front. So let's, let's let's go ahead and read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Whew. It's just such an incredibly moving passage. After all that we've seen in Revelation so far, from letters to churches to trumpets and to scrolls being open and plagues and battles between good and evil, the, the slain lamb to the wedding feast of the lamb, and many, many more pictures that we've been through As we get to the end, this is the vision that John sees. He sees a new heaven. He sees a new earth coming down. He sees the current earth, the current order of things passing away. He sees the new Jerusalem coming down as a beautiful bride, like walking down the aisle on her wedding day, coming down out of heaven, adorned. And he hears a voice proclaiming that God's place is now with his people and they will be his and he will be theirs. And as if this isn't beautiful enough, the voice proclaims an end to death, to mourning, to crying, to pain. The old order of things has passed away. The sin, the brokenness, the evil, the division, the disease has passed away. And God wipes every tear from every eye. You know, I know I was I was moved when I heard this description of hope and I really began to, to think through it. Now imagine if you're one of the persecuted Christians John is writing to. Remember the ultimate goal of the, this entire letter, the entire apocalyptic vision of John, is not to cause fear in Jesus' followers, but to share hope, encouragement, and perseverance in the midst of incredible evil and suffering. This vision does that. But it does more than that. The, this vision in verses 1-4 through four also perfectly matches and fulfills Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 66-22. It's coming up here. Um, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. But then also more specifically, Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Does that not look just like what we read in Revelation? Yes, it does. Most definitely it does. 
In John's apocalyptic vision here, he is seeing a scene that Isaiah also saw. He is seeing the scene Isaiah saw, but seeing it come to fulfillment. I just think, I always think this, and I share this whenever I preach, I'm always just amazed at how Scripture just connects to Scripture. It's just so beautiful how God designed this thing to just work together like that. But before we get too much into the bigger picture, let's keep moving a little bit. And when I say keep moving, this will be our... Our, our, our fast food, our drive-through version of the next several verses, okay? So as we look at 5 through 8, we see God speaking from His throne, declaring He is making all things new, and that He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And then He gives them invitation to the water of life and reminds the people of the judgment, the lake of fire, that some will face. And then in verses 9 through 21, John sees a picture of the new Jerusalem, and he beautifully describes its gates, its foundations, its jewels, and its other craftsmanship. Now, I will say that there is a lot in that passage, well, all of it, but right there, to mine, and a lot of references back to the Old Testament. I had some in some of my other drafts of this message, but I I, uh, I took them out, but Man, there's just some really cool things um, for you all to dig into if you have some of that time this week or in your in your uh, uh, Sunday school or other Bible studies. But and then as we get to verses 22 through 27, John speaks of something he doesn't see, which is the temple, and what he does see, which is the light emanating from God. Now, one quick comment about the temple. Um, if you all were here about a month ago when I preached uh, on Pentecost, one of the things that was part of that Pentecost message was that Pentecost was the moment when God left the building, when the Spirit moved out, where God started to to migrate from like a specific place back to where He always longed to be, which is with His people. And so it's very interesting now there is no temple because God's presence is with his people. This is the completion, the fulfillment of that. John says that nothing impure will enter into this city and its light only, and its light is only for those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. He also says that the kings of the earth will bring their splendor and the nations will be coming in, bringing their glory and honor as they live and walk by the light. The nations returning and coming. And then this kind of wraps up chapter 21. And chapter 22, it begins with the angel showing John the the river of life flowing from the throne, flowing through the city with the tree of life on both sides of the river. And the tree of life has leaves that heal the nations. This is a beautiful picture there. And then he concludes by reiterating that God will be with his people even face to face. He will be their light and they will reign forever. And as chapter 22 ends, 
It ends with warnings of what to do and what not to do with this vision and prophecy. It ends with words of encouragement and a, and a call, Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, come. And it ends with a call for the people to be ready. All right, like I said, that's the speed version, okay? Now let me make some broad observations about these chapters. For one, they are loaded with Old Testament scripture references. And I know that I've already mentioned this and I like to harp on this, but is it important to remember that scripture is critical in interpreting scripture, especially with apocalyptic literature? And to go one step further, these two chapters are loaded with references to Genesis 1 through 3. Probably more than any other reference. The question is why? Why so many references to Genesis 1 through 3? We have to remember, though, that this is one big, beautiful story. It's a story that has a beginning. And it didn't begin in Revelation 1. It began in Genesis 1. It's a lot larger story. It begins with a God who created things and called them to be. And it ends with a God and His new creation and new heaven and a new earth. It begins with a God who separated darkness and created light. And it ends with a God who is the light as darkness is no more. It begins with a tree of life that humans were separated from. And it ends with a tree of life with leaves to heal the nations. It begins with four rivers flowing out to all the nations and the ends of the earth with one, and then it ends with one river flowing with life and nations streaming to it. And it begins with the God walking with his creation in the cool of the day, and it ends with a God we see face to face. These are just a few of the references back to Genesis 1 through 3 that we see in this last passage, these last two chapters of Scripture. There's reason for it. God is showing John that at the end of all things, everything he intended from the beginning will be fully realized and consummated. Everything that was undone by the fall and the sinfulness of mankind will be redeemed and restored. That good God who called everything he created good is the same God who never forgot his original plan and was willing to give himself up to restore it back. So once again, why are there so many references to Genesis 1-3? through Because our God is the God who is from the beginning and is at the end. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. He is the God who shows us that the end is actually the beginning. You know, there are just so many ways that John uses the Genesis and other 
parts of the Old Testament, in the entire book of Revelation. And, you know, as I'm trying to put this sermon together, I'm trying to think, well, why, you know, why, why does he need to do all this? And for one reason, I think that the book of Revelation, it is its own book. It is its own letter. But it is not meant to be read in absence of the rest of Scripture. All the visions of John, all those things that we've been talking about over the last, I don't know how many months now that we've been in the Revelation series, but all those different pictures and images and visions, all that apocalyptic chaos, all of that um, danger. And really, if we think about it too, coming back from our side of things, all the controversy that often comes from the book of Revelation, all the disagreements, all of the, the ways that we could interpret all of these visions, at the end of the day, This book fulfills the vision that we saw started in the first pages of Scripture. The vision that God gave to John here sure was for for the original audience. It was for those Christians he was writing to. But it's for anybody to be able to look and see how God so perfectly and beautifully brings all things together. From Genesis to Malachi, from Matthew to Jude, Revelation 21 and 22 are like the conclusion, the last piece of thread in a beautiful beautiful tapestry that God was weaving. Or for those of you who like to do puzzles, those puzzles that have like 30,000 pieces or maybe less than that. But you get to that place where there's just that one or two last pieces and you even know where they are, but there's just something completing. There's just something beautiful about placing those last pieces in the puzzle and then all of a sudden you see the whole picture unfold before you. And not only is there a sense of beauty and awe when you see it, but there's a real sense of here. That's Revelation 21 and 22. That's what they're supposed to do to us. And certainly I believe that's what they did to the original audience. I think another important reason to focus on all of the way these images in Revelation connect back to the Old Testament, especially for me, is that we, when we do this, we realize that the story is actually bigger than us. It's much bigger than us. And I need to be regularly reminded of that. As I said at the beginning, my own experience with heaven and salvation and the future hope were too small and limited. Because I only thought in terms of myself. This creation image draws us to be to the created order, but also draws us more symbolically to the nations. And in Romans 8, one of the things that Paul says is, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that 
the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Creation itself is groaning. It's awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. It's, it's groaning and awaiting the end for God to come back and put those last two puzzle pieces in for us to see. All of creation is, but not just the created order, the nations. God desires that all people experience this. He foresees a day when all the nations are streaming in to this new heaven and new earth. It's not about a certain people or a people group. It's all people who are written in the Lamb's book of life streaming in and experiencing the redemption in Jesus Christ. Forgive me, Lord, for the times when I think it is just about me. Because when I do, I fail to see the need to take that, this beautiful picture, take this and share it with others. The kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't just about Jesus redeeming and saving you and I. It's about Him redeeming and saving all things and all people. It's about a restoration and consummation of all creation. For in the beginning, God created all things and He called them good. But not too long after He created and called everything good, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God and sin and death entered the world and caused this separation. And as that separation continued and things continued to descend into sin and evil, God came up with a plan and He chose a man and a family named Abraham. That through that man and his family, He would bring salvation. He would bring redemption. He said to Abraham in one of His promises that all nations will be blessed through you. And as we go on through the story, we see that God was using and growing his family, Abraham's family. But there was still this separation between God and his people. And so God gave the people the law, which told them how they needed to be, how they needed to act, so that they could be with him, that his tabernacle could come and be present in the middle, in the midst of the people. And so they had laws and they had sacrifices and offerings that allowed God's presence to be with his people. But that wasn't sustainable. And the prophets talked about a time when things would change. Even if we looked at that Isaiah passage as just an example, they imagined a time when all of that would be changed. There would be this new heavens and this new earth. But as we see in the Old Testament, there is nothing that could get us to the place where we're fully restored to God. And so as we enter the New Testament, we see Jesus being born. We see 
the Son of God coming, the incarnation, God becoming flesh and dwelling amongst His people, taking on their sin on the cross, dying for them, raising from the dead the first fruits of the resurrection, the first fruits of the life to come. And then God giving His Spirit after Jesus ascends to heaven. And then we say, where does the story go? It goes here. One day Jesus is coming back. And what He's bringing with Him isn't a harp and a cloud. It's a new heaven. It's a new earth. It's this beautiful picture that has been laid out for us. And so, one of the things I want to encourage and challenge you with right now is I want you, I know this might be a little weird, but I want you, I'm going to encourage you to close your eyes and go with the journey on me. So what I want you to do as you have your eyes closed is I want you to give your heart and your mind permission to imagine and visualize everything I'm about to share with you. Imagine yourself now. Maybe you're one of the early Christians. Maybe you're John receiving this vision. Or maybe you're just you right now as you're maybe in the midst of your own crisis or difficult time. But just see yourself And now imagine in the midst of the turmoil, imagine in the midst of what you're facing, all of a sudden you look up because you hear this horn blast. And as you look up, you see coming out of the sky something that you don't understand, but it it looks like a whole new creation coming down. And as you see it, you're just captured, you're taken aback by its beauty. The only way you can describe it is like it's coming down from heaven like a bride coming down her wedding day aisle. It's beautiful. And within that new creation you see, you see this new city. And the city is just like nothing you've ever seen. And as you see this, you hear this voice that's proclaiming that God is coming and He's coming to be with His people. He's coming to be with you because He wants to be your God and He wants you to know that you are fully His. Now imagine as you see this this city, you're kind of walking through the city. You see this river that's flowing And it's just the water looks like you just want to reach down and drink from it because it's so, looks so good to drink. It's so refreshing, so renewing. And as you follow the river up its bank, you see this large tree and you don't quite understand how it works because there's this tree that's on both sides of the bank, but you can tell that it's the same tree. And you look at its fruit. And you look at its leaves 
And there's just something different and powerful about them. And you see people from different nations streaming to the tree. People who maybe you've seen in this world fight against one another, all of a sudden taking part of this tree and finding peace with one another. As you keep going, you notice that the river is flowing all the way into the throne room. And as you walk into the throne room, you see on the throne, you see the Lord. You see Jesus sitting there. And you see Him for the first time face to face. And He looks at you. And He smiles. And He says, Behold, I am making all things new. I am the Alpha, the the Omega, the beginning and the end. Death is no more. Crying is no more. Mourning is no more. Pain is no more. The old order of things, brokenness, sin, division, evil, I have conquered. And as you look at his face, tears well up in your eyes. And you don't know if those tears are because you're so captivated and overwhelmed by this picture. Or you don't know if it's because of all the things that you've went through that you're carrying carrying in still with you. But Jesus just smiles again at you. He reaches over to you. He sees your tears. He puts his hand, his finger upon your face, on your cheek, and he wipes that tear away. This is the hope we have. This is the picture that John paints before us. This is the hope of heaven, the new creation. This is the completion of the story that was begun in the garden. This is the story that has been from the beginning and will be at the end. This is a story about a God who so jealously loves His creation and His people that He would do anything to get to this last scene, even die, even watch Himself be crucified, to be crucified on that cross, to go into the grave. He would do anything to be with us and to restore us back to this place where we are with Him face-to-face in His new creation. And we may weep no more. This is the consummation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we are just so captivated and captured by the beauty that we see in this vision from John in Revelation. We are just overwhelmed by the fact that this new heavens, this new earth that you have before us, Lord, is a place where we can come and find ourselves whole and healthy 
and happy, filled with joy, filled with renewal, where death no longer threatens us or the ones that we love. Lord, I'm just taken aback by the how you work your story from beginning to end. I'm so taken back by the fact that this this Bible, this word of yours, written over so much time, written by different people, can all come together beautifully like a tapestry to show your story throughout time and space. A story that you are fulfilling Lord Jesus, I don't know where people are in this room today, but I do know that you are the king. You are the lion of Judah. You are the slain lamb. You are the one that when we place our trust, our hope in you and what you have done for us, you will bring this future hope into full consummation. Lord, we trust you. We know that our hope in you and your promises is never Lord, it's just never for naught. So Lord, I pray for each of us as we go here today. May we go with a bigger sense and a vision of what heaven and salvation looks like. May we no longer just be drawn to you because we don't want to go somewhere. But may we be drawn to you because we see what you have done, what you are doing, and what you are still bringing before us. Lord, just bless our days, bless our times, bless our reading of your word, and may we always be drawn up into it, just as you imagined when you wrote it. I pray this all in the powerful and wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Amen.